I worked with this filmmaker years ago, uh, Stanley Kubrick, and he said, when I'm writing the script, I, always, I finish the script and I always say, wow, what a great writer. Yeah. And then he goes, and I'm directing the script. And I said, that, that writer was an idiot. And, and then he said, then, then I get into the editing and I go, what was that fucking director thinking? You know? And, and, and I think, you know, that's very much how all of us experienced that kind of process. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a female conductor faces challenges as she takes on a major production in director Todd Field's psychological drama, Tar. Set in the international world of classical music, the film follows groundbreaking composer and conductor Lydia Tar as her life begins to unravel while preparing both a book launch and a much-anticipated live performance of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. In addition to Tar, Field's other directorial credits include the feature films Little Children and In the Bedroom, and episodes of Carnival and Once and Again. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Field spoke with director Greta Gerwig about filming Tar. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I had the experience that I, I think you guys just all had a few nights ago on my own, and I um, really wanted to talk to everyone about it, so I imagine that's the way you're feeling right now, <laughs> and I'm so honored that I get to do this with you, and it's a really, it's, I, I think it's such an extraordinary film, and I feel, um, I just feel so excited that it's it's come into our presence at this moment so thank you for making it oh, thank you thank you um for i'm just gonna start i'm gonna just like jump into the middle of it which so this is not like a a good introductory question <laughs> but it, i'm gonna go straight to when um sort of the, the how of it or the making of it is when i was watching it i mean i just kept thinking about the, the technique of the film is so is so effortless and it is so um, structured and it is so careful and it is so um, specific in the way that it's shot and it's made. But because you're so invested in the characters and the story, it's 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 easy to not th- think about. It doesn't. You suddenly realize that the that the shot hasn't cut yet, but it doesn't it doesn't announce itself. And one thing I was wondering with like those really long takes. And when it's from far away, how many times do you do that? How many takes do you do? Um, the the sort of the sort of rules for this were to try to to have as few camera angles as possible. Um, and obviously, this character is is driving almost everything, with the exception of two shots: the very last shot that you've just seen, and one shot where you see Francesca Lentini crossing from Zittimer's pharmacy over to the Carlisle, where you see the redhead from behind. But other than that, Kate's in every single frame. So um, it was really about this character, sort of her locomotion, and uh, when it made sense to move with her, when it made sense to watch her. We tried to have a, an economy with that and, and to have no safety net for her as an actor and let her, you know, uh, drive things. So, for instance, uh, you know, one of the long takes, the take the Juilliard scene, for instance, that was a, um, a really important to me that that we were not able to uh, to to cut so that so that 
uh, we had no control, that she controlled that situation. So she was making the decisions about whether to, to cajole or seduce or to uh, lose her temper or, 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 or to negotiate with this sort of version of her younger self as if you were like an older person having the ability to talk to your younger self and saying, no, 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 let me tell you what it really is, you know. But I'm happy to hear you say that because the idea was is that unlike sort of a, all the long takes that we we love as directors, you know, um, that are so exciting, you know, like Touch of Evil or, you know, Boogie Nights or any of these things, I, I, or, or I Am Cuba, we all love those things. But uh, that wasn't really what was required. What was required is that we were able to take her through a 10-minute uh, performance where the coverage was happening within the camera blocking we were within that performance as if we had cuts without cutting how long it took like for that scene for instance um, we had it on the first take and at the very last moment right when the when the um, actor who plays Max came up the aisle the camera operator panned the wrong way So we had, I had, we, Kate and I had blocked that scene alone for two days. Then we brought the crew in and, and, and then we adjusted that blocking to camera and with the sound team. And then we shot for two, we had two days because we knew there was a very good chance we wouldn't get it in one. And then we, we really had it in one take. So uh, we ended up chasing that first take for two more days. And it was on the second day that we finally got it. And it, but you can imagine, oh right? Yeah. So when you rehearse for two days um, uh, with you and Kate figuring out the blocking and then you bring in, you're doing it with the DP there or you bring in the DP after? After. After. Yeah, yeah. So when you're doing it for two days, are you doing it for two days before you start production proper? Is it like in the in prep periods or is no. it like you sort of you're shooting and then you take the two days? No, we, we were shooting and then we were shooting five day a week. So on Saturday we would go and get into that space alone and we would and we would block it together and then we'd come back on Sunday morning maybe and block it and then bring the guys in in the afternoon, show it to them if there was any difficulty with how we block it or we wanted to adjust it or tweak it at all, we would uh, and then the next day we'd start. The and and uh, I just want to. It, it feels like a magic show, and I'm so I'm asking you, how did you make the magic show? And I I, I think that for me, that feeling, it, it's amazing that story because there's such a spontaneity in the performance, and it feels like everything is just occurring in it, and that it the what you're describing. Is sort of um, you know incredible to me, and 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 why it feels so um, perfect is because it's um, so carefully made. And I think another part of it is um, the space itself. And something I thought about in the whole movie is how every single every single space is so specific. And it made me wonder how long when you were writing it, when you were thinking about it, when you were shot listing it, did you know every single space you were going to be in with the actors or was it something you were finding? um, I knew, I knew what the prototypes were. You know, I knew that the, the opening was going to be, you know, a sort of Alice Tully Hall sort of situation um, for the New Yorker talk. I had an idea of what I wanted for that Juilliard classroom. Um, I knew what I wanted for the home. But knowing all of that is one thing. Um, You know, romance versus finance is a nuisance for all of us, you know, which is, you know, you can want these things, but it doesn't mean you can get them. So it was a very extensive um, combination of scouting, and I made a lot of people very nervous and crazy because we really scouted even into shooting. You know, there was a thing that we had to have for her, 
that was really important in terms of how she moved, for instance, how she moves through that home. Uh, it was important that there always be depth in that home. It was important that we be able to follow her in the home without any cuts. It was important that that home be um, kind of a um, feel like it has a sort of very presentational aspect to it where it feels almost like art, like, like she's it's a home to entertain pre-pandemic as opposed to a home to actually live in, where if you look at her sort of in-town studio that she's kept, that Sharon needles her about in that last scene, it feels much more alive and much more like what you would expect from a typical sort of Berlin, Charlottenburg kind of apartment and things like that. But, you know, Marco Bittner-Rosser, who was our production designer, did a remarkable job too because we only had access to the front of the house for the orchestra and we were only in there for, we only had about 10 days with them. Um, uh, we had to be very clever about uh, building out the backstage world and Vim Vendors actually did me a great favor and allowed me to see some footage that he'd shot in some different spaces having to do with that architecture. And so we recreated those. Um, Mar Marco built those, sort of spec those out. And, but yeah, it, it was a, um, there was, there was real intent behind the design of the film, for sure. So as a writer, you had an idea of what you wanted this space to be, but then it felt like it, it was, um, as you found the spaces themselves, it was, they were both answering the kind of shooting you wanted to do and informing it. It was both Very ways. much so, yeah. I mean, for instance, that the home where they live, that's a very uh, special place. It's... Um, you know, it belongs to a, a family and um, they've never allowed anyone in there before. And they're a family that, if you can tell from their bookshelves, are quite well read or at least they're pretending to be. Um, and, and they have, you know, a massive art collection. And so the first question I said was, can we use everything? And they said, yes, yeah, you can, you know. <laughs> so that was that was a huge bonus, you know, because trying to kit a place out like, as you know, for an art department, it would be completely unreasonable. I, another thing I was sort of curious about was um, just in terms of your films in general and how this one is different is in terms of ha having a source material or feeling that the, did you feel like you and um, Kate Blanchett and the research you did created a sense of source material or did you feel... Uh, have that anxiety of authorship versus anxiety of influence. Well, I mean, what's yeah. the, how does it, did it feel different as a director? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, an anxiety of ownership, certainly, because you don't have, an, you, there's no IP to hide, hide behind. But also probably the most tremendous sense of freedom I've ever experienced since I was at the American Film Institute as a fellow, you know, almost 30 years ago. And um, to where, not to be overly general, but Germans can be very literal people. And um, so I had a script supervisor and I, you know, Kate and I, I would say, well, Kate would say, well, what about this? I'd say, oh, screw that. Let's, let's do something else. Let's do that. Let's turn this on its head and let's throw that out. And the script supervisor would get very upset with me and she'd go, but it's in the script. You have to do this. It's in the script. I said, yeah, but some other idiot wrote that script. I'm the director, you know? And and it was it was nice to have that that sense of freedom. So yeah, I mean, it, very much so. I mean, um, it, it was a it was a very very free um, sort of stage to to be able to play on, you know. So yeah, I, the sort of separation. So you have a sense of separation between your writer self who's alone and then the director self who comes in. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked with this filmmaker years ago, uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick, and he said. Uh, he said, you know, when I'm writing the script, I, always, I finish the script and I always say, wow, what a great 
what a great writer. Yeah. And then he goes, and then I'm directing the script. And I said, that, that writer was an idiot. And, and then he said, then, then I get into the editing and I go, what was that fucking director thinking? You know? And, and, and I think, you know, that's very much how all of us experienced that kind of process, you know? Which sort of leads me to the, um, working with your editor and, and the wet, sort of, to that scene we were talking about in the, in the Juilliard classroom, or, or some even even scenes that aren't as um, sort of la lavishly long takes. It's you know some of the uh, things play out in a frame, which I really appreciate because it's I find it to be even more immersive to watch actors live in time, mm. which is such a uh, you know present theme in in the film and in terms of when you're shooting and you say, oh, okay, you know, on day two, we got the take, we almost got on the first day, you know, and we, we, that's, that's the one. As then when you're working with your editor, do you have a sense of like, here are the takes that I like and do they stay the same or is it, uh, as they say, is it different in the bath? Does it come out differently? And you think, oh, actually, that it was. It yeah, was yeah. I mean, it, I, yeah. I think it comes out differently. I don't think you have a sense of perspective when you're shooting in, in a schedule like this. Uh, there's no time to watch dailies. I didn't see any dailies until post. Not, not oh, wow. any. You know, yeah. so there were brutal days, and um, you know, there's, I think there's 265 scenes in this film, and they're almost every day, with the exception of the. Um, the material that we did with the Dresden Philharmonic and when they're in their residence or when she's in her apartment, almost every other day had like at least two company moves. So, um, and moving around Berlin can be very challenging because there's a lot of protests there and they shut a lot of roads down and sometimes you'll just get stuck someplace. So, um, you know, as you can see, the film is sort of meant to be in this sort of corridor, the sort of November uh, light corridor, which is very brief. So we had shot we intentionally um, done all of our interiors first and then done stuff where we were going to see windows or be outside at the very end. But it was very, very challenging. Um, they were really tricky days. So um, it, we were supposed to be editing, you know, for the same reason that everybody does it for, you know, tax purposes. We were supposed to edit in the UK, which of course had nothing to do with this movie. I wouldn't, I couldn't edit here. I couldn't, I couldn't edit um, in Germany. Um, and, uh, We'd had there had been another lockdown, uh, so um, we went and bubbled up in in uh, Scotland in a, like a 15th century you know nunnery, and, and none of us could drive. And Mona, uh, my editor, is from Austria, and I had our apprentice editor with me and another assistant, and and so we were stuck in this place with like you know sheep, you know, <laughs> and uh, that was actually the best thing that could have happened because. Um, we cut seven day weeks. We never took a day off. Um, and so, yeah, you'd be convinced that you, you knew what certain takes were from the day and then you'd look at them. And I mean, a prime example would be um, like Noemi Merlant, who plays Francesca Lentini, who's a wonderful actor, um, but an actor who's really uh, does very tiny things with her eyes, very, very specific things with her eyes. And I learned a lot in terms of uh, just in terms of direction I had given her because I realized in the editorial process I'd really probably over-directed her. And it was almost, when I go back to dailies, I realized, no, 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 it was the first take for her. She was a first take actor almost all the time. So it's all those sort of things that you, you know, that you learn about your, your best laid plans and your shortcomings as a director, you know. 
Was the structure of the film in terms of uh, how it starts on the plane and then having maybe not a mystery, but not knowing exactly who is on the other side of the phone. Was that something that was included? Was that a, was that in the script or was that something that was sort of found in the editing in terms of um, who's behind the phone? Oh, who's behind you know, the you phone? You don't now know. Or was that something that you were like, that's always been the beginning of the movie? It was no, I always knew that's how the film would start. You always knew that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That seemed, it, it was it was it was a great start. Um, I, yeah, I'm always so curious. So how so when you were saying you throw some, you know, you and Kate would be like, oh, okay, this is not going to work. Do you have a, a sense of um, sort of abandoning script things if they if they're if they're not working, or do you do you have a, like a real the writing is kind of you you stay close? No, I don't believe in. I mean, I think script is a script is important. I mean, it's important to have a plan, like it's important to have a schedule, you know, one-liner. But you have to also say, okay, um, it's just a plan, you know, and it's a plan made in a very specific moment when you're sitting alone at a, at a table. It's not a, it's, it's a practical matter, um, things change. And, it, and if you shoot, I mean, when you, do you shoot in order? Do you try to shoot in continuity? I'm, I always want to, and then th there's always a reason I can't. There's always a reason yeah. you can't, but you try to. I right? try to, yeah. yeah. Well, we tried to as well, and I, I, you know, the obvious advantage, as we all know, you know, to shooting in order is you get to a scene and you go, wait a minute, we've already done this scene. We already got the meaning of this scene on scene 42, and now we're in scene 66, and we're doing a scene that feels the same. What are we doing? Do we need this scene? Should we throw it out? Is there another opportunity here that we're missing? What else could we activate here, or at least hip pocket for editorial that we don't have? And in that way, um, I, I think it's more than a luxury to shoot in continuity. I think, it, it, you know, obviously you can't, you can't always do it, but if you can do it, it's a, it's a huge advantage. And I guess to that point, Kate Blanchett is so staggeringly amazing in this film, and it it's hard to know sort of where to start with what what her performance is. But in terms of the way the two of you work together, did it feel like there were two directors or two maestros on the film? Did she feel like she contained the film too? No, no. no. I mean, she doesn't. She's not somebody that stays in character or anything like yeah. that. She's a. a you know, Kate is a many things, like Lydia Tarr is many things, you know, and, and one of the things that Kate is, is uh, she possesses a giant intellect, but she also has a, just as giant of a soul and a heart. And, um, and she, when she comes on set, she understands uh, what it is to be um, in that position. And she's understands, she's very sensitive to, to everyone's concerns on a set. She's very responsible that way. So, um, she uh, she's someone that will she'll know what's going on with a second cable man and the sound team over there. That's that would be as far as she would reach in terms of um, maybe coming up and, and suggesting that you do something differently, which is like, you know, Hans back there, he's had some problems this week. And, you know, maybe we should give him a little time off or something. You know, I think it's like that. You know, it's not nothing else. No, she she and um, and she kind of demands like you don't believe this. You know, you, always, you never know until you're on the floor with, together. But she said to me early on, she said, just tell me if I'm. I'm too loud or just tell me. And I, of course you don't, you know, I don't, I've been talking, I've been in dialogue with the, with this person I'm collaborating with for 
a year, but we haven't really danced yet. And it took me, admit, it took me uh, several weeks to actually believe what she was saying, you know. Um, but she meant it, and she's a very game performer. She's a very fearless performer, and she'll try anything, you know. She's not protective at all. Did it feel like, um, in terms of who Lydia Tarr became, that it was something that... Uh, as you worked together so long before you started shooting, that it felt like a like a third creation that existed between the two of you. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, we you know we we would finish work and then go down. We go after work. We'd sit down and start talking about what was coming up, and out of those conversations emerged a very very different film and. Um, a much, much better film than I wrote, for sure, you know, um, a much more exciting. It was much more exciting to turn up at work, you know. Um, uh, we would uh, we would have exchanges on literally on the way it would work into the makeup trailer and the whole day would, would shift, you know. So, and I was really, we were, and she and I were lucky also because everybody else that showed up on this film were, were amazing. I mean, Nina Haas, I mean, Nina Haas, you know, the first conversation that I ever had with Nina, she, um, she said, I think you're missing something here. You might want to do this a little differently. And, and so that was kind of the working atmosphere with this cast. And, uh, and I was very lucky. I was smart enough to listen to them. Let's put it that way. Um, I I feel like it's it's the greatest gift when a, when an actor sort of says, "I think you're wrong," um, mm. but from a place of kindness, <laughs> um, yeah. because then it uh, uh, anything that shakes you out of your certainty, I think, is better for the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I find that just in general, anything that I I've executed just the way I wanted to is usually the worst thing in the mm. editing room. And the thing where I let them do something that I was like, well, I don't know, I'll never use this. That's, that's the one the yeah, that yeah. you're like, oh, no, they knew something I didn't know. Absolutely. And that that's why it's somebody told me, just hire smarter people than you. Yeah. And that seems to be a <laughs> yeah, good, yeah. A good, that good, a good That's a good That's a good working method. Yeah, hire smarter. Yes, that's, it's, it's, it's definitely the, the, way, the path forward with, with everything. Um, and in ter- when you're working with your cinematographer and sort of, I, I was struck by, I guess it's because I've mostly been in Berlin in February during the, mm-hmm. the, the festival. Yeah. And it has that very beautiful, cold light yeah. everywhere. And I get, um, sort of, was there a, it, it felt like so much of the lighting when there was natural light was just natural light. Like I, I sort of, well, Flo- Florian, uh, Florian Hofmeister, I had seen his work. He did this television show. I don't know if any of you guys have seen for AMC, the first season of The Terror that Ridley Scott had produced. And Ed Berger, who's got this film uh, uh, that I'm really anxious to see of uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Ed, um, Ed and Florian go way back. And I talked to Ed about, about Florian because the lighting in, in that show was so exquisite. The whole thing takes place on this boat in the first season and it's but but it's all on a stage and the light is so true the daylight on the faces the values are so incredible so delicate his lighting and and that was really exciting i was really um so thrilled when when florian agreed to do it and and that was a real challenge because we started in very hard light you know um and so 
it was constantly trying to keep November in our interiors that we knew we were chasing at the end and, and, and praying that we were going to get into nice flat, you know, cover for negative light for our exteriors and for, again, when you saw windows. But, yeah, it was a very, very tricky thing. It was very, particularly, I mean, when I think of her apartment that she keeps for herself and the light coming through the window, it just had that 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 gray, misty yeah, quality. Yeah, yeah, the classic sort of Berlin light yeah. that we think. Yeah. No, and I was thinking when you said about the literalism of Germans, I remember the first time I was in Berlin during in February during Berlin Film Festival, and we were driving past this park, and I said, oh, it must be all green in the summer. And the man with me said, not all green. <laughs> I, was, I, I was like, oh, no, I, I don't mean literally everything. And okay, I stand corrected. Yes. I, yeah. I just meant, you know, yeah. trees. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, but, but I was, I, I have a, I sort of have an emotional response to that light. Um, mm. And then, you know, there was something about the, I, I felt, it, it was almost like a physical sense of, um, of the way the sound design, obviously the sound design is such a huge part of it mm. with the music, but the way I felt her sensitivity to sound in a way that I don't think I have because I'm um, not attuned because I'm in New York and right. I the decibel that we all experience on every day. I felt like uh, how I would love for you to talk to, about working with you know, capturing sound on set and then sound designer and how you mm. work with that because it, it really does put you in the space of somebody who can hear things mm. differently than mortals do. Yeah, um, well, um, you know, recently they've sort of, um, they have terminology for for her sensitivities, you know, misophonia, kinophobia, uh, phonia, which is um, sort of sensitivity to both sound but also to um things in your peripheral vision, like somebody tapping their foot or tapping their arms or just things that would literally make you want to kill yourself, you know, and, and that's what she sort of suffers from. And that's qu actually quite common for people in her position, which is why they don't listen to, they don't like incidental sound. They don't like music as background. And if it is in background, for instance, like in their home, it'd be bassy or it'd be, um, you know, Van Heusen and Burke, you know, it would be something that's not work because work is about intent listening and she has an incredible ear as long as she can control it you know a bit like us like we make stuff and we all feel like we're in control when we're mixing you know there's it, we finally have control over the sound finally you know but for a conductor it's very common that they have these sort of um strange um allergies um but in terms of the sound of the of the film yeah a lot of the sound we had shot um ahead of time and we played back a lot of uh, things had to do with sound had to do with tempo also for Kate um, because uh, we wanted, we really talked a lot about her tempo so um, like Hilda Gundendotter our composer we she and I met months before and started kind of going through sketches uh, stuff that could be sort of sonically through the film but more importantly um, actually things that we could put into Kate's head while she's moving. So she always had something going in her head the entire time. But in terms of the, in terms of the actual um, sound design, some of that, again, we were in the middle of Scotland with nothing to do. And the only thing we had to worry about was the bang sheep or the wind. And so we were able to, able to shoot a great deal of foley ourselves there. Um, a lot of the foley in the film, it's just stuff that Moen and I went out and shot. And then uh, the sound crew um, uh, had a, had a really tough job because um, it's actually very, very difficult to to uh, to design uh, for Stephen Griffiths, who our sound, our sound designer, um, 
to make a film quieter because there, there are holes in the sound, which is why they're always pumping stuff through in the mixes, you know, they'll pump air through and stuff like that. But to try to um, sort of set the rules for the film to where hopefully uh, when you're watching it, you begin to listen in a different way. Uh, but yeah, it's a, um, the, the noises, the, the things that bother her are uh, as important as, as, as the score or the music that she's making for sure. I don't, I want to ask this question, but I also, I, I don't know exactly how to pose it, but other than, um, it, it holds up this character who has so many um, facets of herself and so many things to admire and despise and to lean into and to identify with and to push away. I wondered if you could speak to just a little bit, um, is there any way that you look at this um morally or from any sort of moral standpoint or is it something where you are giving us a portrait I guess as a filmmaker in a film is it do you have a sense of of morality of of, of not judgment but um do I have a point of view about Lydia Tarr no I yeah I mean I suppose yeah. that's it yeah um yeah but that it, it's uh that point of view is very fluid you know like I felt differently about her mm. in the script stage I felt differently about her during production um, based on on what Kate um, brought to it and, and and based on the conversations with as I mentioned you know, some of the other cast like Nina um, and, and then through post you know I mean Mona my editor we'd, we'd watch the film down and turn to each other at the end and say how did you feel about her today? And and Mona would say, mm, I don't know. I didn't like her today. <laughs> and then I would say, okay. And she goes, how about you? I said, no, I'm, I feel really indifferent about her today. And then the next three days later, we'd, yeah. we'd do changes. We'd watch it down. And she'd say, how did you feel about her today? And I'd say, well, I, I kind of admire her courage. Mm. When she gets up at the end, she has her instrument back. Maybe she has a chance. It feels hopeful. And she'd say, yeah, I feel that too. And then we'd watch it again. I mean, it would change in every viewing, you know, and I think that that's sort of a Rorschach test about how much you've eaten, how much you've slept, your, your state of mind is, who you're sitting with, you know, if you're sitting in a comfortable chair. I think um, because it's, you know, her idiosyncratic nature, you know, she makes decisions based on what are clearly some of them are strategic, some of them are a fear of, you know, feeling as if she's... Um, predictable and that's a big thing for her um some of them are based on allergies she's in a, she's a hypocrite she's all these things she's a human being mm. you know um and i think i can identify my own traits within her and I, th I think those are probably available for a lot of a lot of us you know um about like judging her one way or the other um i think it's it, it you know it that's always a possibility for for anyone and um there's the film is certainly an invitation to do so. Mm. So, it, I was thinking when I was watching it, and and, and afterwards that sort of I I had just read about um, when Tolstoy was writing Anna Karenina, the first draft Anna Karenina was just sort of this just really selfish kind of lazy not that interesting person and then as he rewrote and rewrote and then it got this complexity that sort of emerged and it's sort of i mean tolstoy being 
pretty judgmental morally, I'd say, um, uh, in a good good, good way. <laughs> but but the, yeah. like he started with a certain sense of judgment, and right. then as he worked on it, it deepened and changed, and it became this t- completely complex character that y- it is, you look at it one way, and it's this way, and you look at it this and right. And I was thinking of that with, with Lydia Tarr, and it, f- it has that sense of depth, and I think it speaks to the the filmmaking and the and the and the work that both you and your collaborators and Kate did together because it doesn't feel it just never feels like you've seen it all sides of it so well done <laughs> well thank you thank you that's very nice for you to say thank you for coming thank you Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.